This is the Video Junkyard Podcast. A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-ape with the strength of 20 demons. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Video Junkyard Podcast. This is actually episode number 148, and with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Joe Peterson. How's it going tonight, Joe? Very good, and yourself? Oh, doing pretty good. Awesome. I could complain, but I won't, because... uh, No. No, it's... uh, hard to complain when it was like 80 degrees and sunny outside today it felt like summertime it's like yeah we we didn't get that here it was like <laughs> 57 and overcast and windy well, it was just like so. you go outside and like the sun would peek out for a minute i go outside like this looks nice nope it just kind of sucks it's not <laughs> like bad it wasn't bad weather it just wasn't nice yeah. so but uh so yeah we um Though we're getting our yard already and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I know you guys did this last year. You and the kids put in a little garden last year, right? Yeah, and actually it turned into quite a big garden. And I think we're going to, like, expand this year. So try to do even more. And and, nice. and I really can't, you know, in any, you know, it, on the off chance that my wife actually listens to this episode and I take credit for the garden, I think I might be <laughs> getting a divorce. So, um but yeah, no. She, she and the kids really get the get more of the credit than my than me. Although I, you know, I helped move heavy stuff and did do some digging with the shovel. But um, yeah, that's it's really really her uh, her effort and everything. Uh, but yeah, we did a decent sized garden, grew tons of zucchini, more zucchini than we knew what to do with. <laughs> nice. Um, I, yeah. I'm thinking about changing stuff up this year. This, cause yeah. this is this is the official old man part of the show now where we're talking oh, yeah. about our gardens. But at the risk of, <laughs> of doing that, I'll go ahead. Um, we know you tuned into this uh, horror-filled episode to hear talk about, about, hear about gardening, gardening tips. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm just we're thinking about changing some some stuff up because like we do tomatoes and God, that's a lot of work for. Yeah. Tomatoes. The yield is not great for. <laughs> well, we got enough. It's just like after a while, it's like all right, more friggin' tomatoes. Like I got a whole, I got frozen cherry tomatoes from last year. I have no idea what to do with, because <laughs> I had to do something with them, so I froze them. And I don't know, maybe I'll try to make a sauce. But it's yeah, we be mostly skin. We had a couple of tomato plants, and we didn't get much from either of them. So we'll try yeah. again this year. I think on those. But I think I think we're gonna do more like try to do peppers and stuff that we can, you know, cook up with steaks or chicken or something on the grill that's always kind of fun yeah but yeah so yeah those are the gardening tips jesus <laughs> oh my yeah. back hurts just saying that <laughs> my god but you know it didn't always used to be like this i used to watch i used to watch shit like i wouldn't watch my garden grow i watch horror films <laughs> that's a good kind of a good uh way to think about the uh horror television series that we're going to talk about this evening um you know 
we always try to keep it a secret. You you see the title of this so yeah, as you're you you know, listening on to it, but <laughs> right. But um yeah, so it's it's good kind of talking about the like you the way back when kind of tone that you gave to it is appropriate for this one for me because I don't think I've seen many of these since they first. Now I didn't I didn't have Showtime when when this show first came out and it was exclusive you know to Showtime, and uh, so I had to wait for the DVD releases. But that's the last time when those were initially came out on DVD. I think was the first first and last time I saw most of these. Yeah, um, wish I Same saw here. those DVDs. They're selling for quite a bit now, but. Anyway, I also just realized I have like a there's a, a segue connection with this too because I think I got Showtime for a while to watch this, mm. and then when it was over, I was like, eh, might get rid of Showtime, and then Dexter aired. Oh God! And it got me into Dexter, and then luckily we moved, and I didn't renew Showtime because then I would have had to watch the train wreck that Dexter became in real time. <laughs> Instead, yeah. I binged it on Netflix and was still angry that I wasted my time. Yeah, it's coming back if you want to give it another shot. Yeah, you know, my... <laughs> have, I, have I shared my philosophy of bringing back Dexter with you? <laughs> what is it? Does it don't? Because that's my... I think, well, but, uh, I, imagine that you're in college and you've got that college friend that comes over and they're they're really fun they always do something pretty crazy at a party but then that one night they just go way fucking too far and they like <laughs> i don't know they take a shit in your fish tank and they throw up in your bed or something and they set someone's hair on fire and you're like all right you gotta go and you haven't spoken to them in years and then <laughs> all of a sudden like two months ago they call you up and be like hey you want to go grab a beer and you're like i don't know if i'm ready <laughs> that's that's Dexter being rebooted to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have to agree. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. I I was pretty much so not excited that I went, "Yeah, I probably won't watch that." Like that they did that show in like I mean, just two or three awful uh, almost unwatchable seasons that unfortunately I watched. So, so. yeah, it it ended so friggin' hard. And I, it it's a shame he's not with us on the show tonight, but I think Ryan's dice goal summed up the best he said that once told me dexter's final victim was his fan base <laughs> and that is very appropriate ryan yeah so so yeah about this other show that were <laughs> this show was pretty good though yeah like i i remember liking what i saw but i did the same thing where well there was there was the one episode that you could only get it on dvd for a while they didn't right. hear it yeah and just to you know get it out there in case you're not looking at the screen of your phone or however you're listening to our podcast that show is the uh showtime original series masters of horror which is a little more of a which is a horror anthology series uh created by mick garris which uh featured uh individual short films hour-long short films made by um famous directors who are famous for their works in the horror genre so i don't want to call them horror directors because many of them did a lot of things during their career but you know, made some famous horror films. So uh, them them being just off the top of my head, John Carpenter, John Landis, uh, Toby Hooper, um, Larry Cohen, um, et cetera, Gordon. et cetera. Stuart yeah. Gordon, yeah, et cetera. So pretty much all of the big names he got together. And, uh, um, yeah, created this series that was kind of for people like you and I at the age we were, you know, just getting into, well, not just getting into horror, but, like, really, like, becoming fanboys of all of these directors and, um, 
it's kind of a, a, a greatest hits anthology almost of, you know, all of your favorite filmmakers are going to make a show together. And here it is. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're, you know, palpably excited about this coming out. I read, I, I remember just reading about this thing for a year and a half straight. Um, very, very excited. So, yeah, I, I, like I said, I was excited after this one where I actually went and subscribed to Showtime. And it was, I remember in grad school around 2006, uh, making a point on whatever night of the week it was that this aired. I think it was like Friday nights or Saturday nights or something. Like even some other people coming over to watch the episode. Like I, I had got, I had recruited a few other people to get arrested <laughs> in it. Um, but yeah, they most of these episodes were were pretty good. There, I I was always always bothered me a bit that there were some directors that I don't feel were represented here uh, that I really would have loved to have seen something from. But you know, not to complain too much. Um, right. But these started out as a really interesting, like how this show got going. Is kind of neat. Yeah, with, uh, um, was it, it was Mick Garris and um, a number of these people would have dinner, right? Yeah, it started. It, it started off as a social uh, event where you know Mick Garris got a bunch of you know his friends and his uh, people he had worked with through through the years uh, together for what he would call the Masters of Horror dinners, and so all, all these horror directors. Um, Mick Garris being, you know, not only a, a, like a, a accomplished horror director himself, but also a, a major fan and supporter of the genre and always. He's one of my favorite people associated with horror. Um, he's... I, I would never... I, I can't say bad things about him because he's just such a cool guy. I love his podcast. I love everything about, like, what he does. And, like, he's not one of my favorite filmmakers necessarily, but that doesn't mean I dislike the, his movies. But he's done so much for the genre that I just... It's so hard for me to say anything bad about him because I love him so much. But um, Well, he's done a lot of Stephen King TV series. Yeah, and absolutely. So the the stand, I think we were talking about on a show not too long yeah. ago that was just readapted. Well, he did the original... I shouldn't say the original... The first, but... Uh, TV miniseries that came out when when I was a kid uh, was mm -hmm. Mick Garris. So, yeah, worked with Stephen King a, a lot. Um, is it? I think people have made jokes that he's Stephen King's like first call director. You know, like yeah, um, but but for for good reasons. I mean, he's he's willing to to put these large stories together into a teleplay and yeah, and actually I mean, and actually put it out there. He's he's an insanely talented guy. He's a great writer. He's you know. Um, yeah, you see his name pop up on things you would never expect, like things like uh, uh, Batteries Not Included and Hocus Pocus. He wrote both of those movies, by the way. So, like, he's yeah. just, <laughs> yeah, he's all over the place. And, and his his podcast, uh, if you haven't ever heard of Postmortem, is, is really, really great. And, uh, yeah, can't say enough good things about Mick Garris. And, this, and, and Masters of Horror is another one of those things that he's given us, I think, so. Well, in this first season, so what we're going to do is like talk about some of our, at least one of our favorite episodes of the first season and uh, kind of why we picked it. But yeah, this the first season really started out great with, uh, you know, with with a rogues gallery of directors because you have Don Coscarelli, Stuart Gordon, Toby Hooper, Dario Argento, Mick Garris, John Landis, John Carpenter, William Malone, Lucky McGee, Larry Cohen, and Tagashi Miike. John um, McNaughton as well, and John McNaughton. Yes. Yeah. So we we've <laughs> just, um, 
just didn't want to leave one out. That felt no, like. I don't. I thought I read that one <laughs> off. Um, yeah, and then also looking at at where these their their stories came from. Some of them were were written themselves. Others, like people like Clive Barker, uh, David Show, Max Landis, and a number of others. Joe Richard, Lansdale, Joe R. Lansdale, Joe Lansdale, Lovecraft, <laughs> and Matheson. St- Stephen Weber, the actor, wrote a, one of the screenplays. Um, oh, for right. Dario Argento's film Jennifer, so yeah, so yeah, this was really, really excellent. This first season, second season, we're going to talk about next week, but yeah. this yep. one um, definitely had just it, it. It was what I was hoping it would be. I was. Very it's crazy just listening to the names, like because especially, I mean, even still now, I think uh, I would say the same thing, but especially when this came out. This you literally, as you were reading off those names, and as we saw them, you know, back in two thousand five and six when this was coming out, um, this is literally a laundry list of all of my favorite filmmakers and all the people I was like watching all of their movies, and so it's like literally here's here's a film series or a series anthology of short films by all of your favorite directors. It's like yeah, sign me up. Like, <laughs> you know what? It it has always bothered me why a couple of directors aren't in this, like Wes Craven. Yeah, and, and yeah, and unfortunately, he—I mean, maybe he wasn't interested. I don't know. He—he he definitely was. He was a master of horror, as in he was at the dinners. Uh, mm-hmm. He was certainly involved in the like, you know, the. Um, yeah, and I guess we we never. I got sidetracked on on talking about McGarris as a person. Um, never really talked about what what that was, but uh, just getting together a group of horror directors and having dinners and kind of talk talking memories and shop and like what are you guys up to now and it, it slowly turned into like a development of you know what was going ended up being the masters of horror series and, and i know that wes craven was uh, involved in some of that but didn't end up getting on to, you know into involved in the project so i feel like that was possibly a, a personal decision yeah i, 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 I highly about, doubt he would not be invited to this yeah and i wonder about george romero as well mm-hmm and Sean Cunningham, and of course, there's a yeah. number of others, but not not to not to nitpick like, oh, this is a wonderful spread, but you know what you're missing. Um, <laughs> but I really would have loved to see because you know, Romero's a classic. I know he's a favorite of yours as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But wow, the the ones that we got here, and and again, to anybody who doesn't isn't familiar, Don Coscarelli is the director who gave us you know the the Phantasm movies, mm-hmm. which we did. A year or so ago, two years ago, we did our, our big Phantasm show. Stuart yep. Gordon, of course, did Reanimator. Toby Hooper has done Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Dario Argento and Suspiria. Um, Joe Dante did Gremlins and Howling. John Landis, American Orphan in London. Carpenter, of course, Halloween. and Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. I mean, we just keep going on and on. Yeah. These, are, these really are. And William Malone gave us Creature. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> there, there's your, there's your uh, shortest strut. No, I'm just, I yeah. had to pick on him because I, I actually remember kind of liking his episode, so that's fine. Well, and, and Malone did other things too. Like he also, of course, you know, House of Haunted Hill. Yeah, Theater.com. yeah, and he was actually kind of an it horror director at the time when this yeah. was coming out. Like he had just done those things, so. Yeah. Which is important to include as well. So, Lucky yeah. McKee had just had a big hit with May. Um, by around was, the time this was, I was surprised uh, with Lucky McGee's in- incorporation with this because yeah, May was popular, but it wasn't. It was still kind of a indie type. It wasn't like it didn't have a huge following. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I guess when I say big hit, I mean like in horror circles. Like I had heard of it, I read about yeah. it, I went and found it and saw it, and yeah, like. Um, but I, you know, we also did the woods. All cheerleaders must oh, die. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess yeah, a little more than I, I was willing to give credit for initially, but yeah, definitely a, a great list. And a number of these directors do return for season two, but again, we'll talk more about that uh, next week. So, what? Which one did you uh, pick for for this one for for season well, one? What was your What was your favorite episode that you? wanted to revisit so the reason and it, what we did is each of us joe and i both decided we would pick instead of covering the whole season which obviously is a little more time intensive um, uh, and especially for those of you out there that do watch along or um, are checking this stuff out you know prior to a, us doing the show they are by the way free streaming on tubi the entire series which again I, if you can't tell by now we're going to recommend you check out um so yeah we each decided to pick one episode uh, that was significant or a favorite or something, and then we would talk about those uh, from season one, and the next week we, we did the same thing with season two. And I decided... Um, I picked the one that I picked for two reasons, and that is... Uh, one, I remember it being a favorite. There were there were many that I liked a lot in this episode, so or in this season. So I, I don't know. It's hard to say an absolute favorite, but also because it was the first DVD release, and it was actually the first one of the they came out in pairs so it was in the first pair of dvds released and it was the first one i watched because it of course is cigarette burns by uh john carpenter the far absolute demand the absolute end of the world the government seized it and destroyed it i'm a bit obsessive i want you to find the print for me we are a part of the film if it had been destroyed we would know. Bakovic said film in the right hands is a weapon. Well, you spoke to Bakovic? At the start of the festival. I recorded the whole interview. These will change your life. Last night I saw something I can't... Circle? Huh? Like the real change in a movie? Yeah. Then it started. It's only going to get worse from you. What started? What's happening to me? Are you my sweet man, Kirby? As soon as you start getting close to it... It gets inside you. Tell me where the film is. That's not what you want to know. You want to know if the stories about the film are true. I know what you want. You want to see the movie. Relax. Something happens when you point the camera at something terrible. The resulting film takes on power. I was I was really excited about this. It was kind of a return to, you know, a return to horror for John Carpenter, really a return to directing at the time because he had kind of been Yeah, that's true. Um yeah, quiet and uh so yeah, cigarette burns um is an interesting one. <laughs> um let me get a check out. And this know. had this one this had a pretty good cast. Anybody who um Norman Reedus, so yes, Daryl from Walking Dead. Yep. 
tell you a little bit about this one. A man hunts for a copy of a rare film that is said to incite its audience into a frenzy before the theater in which it plays bursts into flames. So that's really all it gives me for a synopsis. And that's, you know, that's that's the general gist of it. Um, it is about a investigator of sorts, a film buff who, you know, for hire, Norman Reedus' character, um, Kirby... Sweetman. Kirby Sweetman. Kirby yeah. Sweetman, that's right. So for hire, goes and finds rare films, right? Like, that's his thing, is, you know, something showed once in the silent era, and it's a supposedly, a, you know, forgotten and lost film, and he goes and tracks that stuff down for people. He gets a, a um, contract for to find the most infamous lost film of all time, and uh, the person that hires him played uh, wonderfully by Udo Kier, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, is, is kind of wonderful in everything he's in, but... Um, yeah, this is a, a very, like, kind of dark love letter to cinema, I feel like. Like, it's just, it's, it's a film nerd movie, or it's a good film nerd idea, at least, uh, you know, it being that there's a private, you know, kind of a cool private investigator that what he does is track down lost movies, because we're all, you know, all of us film nerds sitting around trying to find the, that missing copy of, you know, the death of dracula or whatever that supposed first vampire film that was precedes nosferatu is or if it really ever existed and um anyway yeah yeah i i I guess from the get-go what i'm what i'm getting at is i love absolutely adore the concept of this and i absolutely love john carpenter just kind of in general ever (laughs) and uh so this this should have been a slam dunk and i feel like the first time i watched it i really really enjoyed it however (laughs) Um, things do age and, and, and things change. So, um, I don't know. Any thoughts on, on like, before we dive into like a review, like, um, what was your, what was your history with this specific episode? If you remember anything, I remember this being one of the standouts. And again, part of that was because it's Carpenter, right? So I already Mm -hmm. kind of had hyped it and put it on a bit of a pedestal. Like it was going to be good before I ever saw it. Yeah. That being said, I really did enjoy it uh, when I first saw it. And revisiting it was interesting because, yeah, you can kind of see the dating, you, the, the cracks show a little bit in the beginning of the episode. As it progresses, though, I, I don't know, I found myself settling back in. Yeah. And and being being okay with it. I, It certainly isn't a bad piece. Um I remember really thinking, like, this would have been one on the top, you know, top few episodes of the first season for me, and watching it this time, I, I couldn't feel like, couldn't help but feel a little bit disappointed by the lack of John Carpenter in this John Carpenter movie. Yeah. He just, it's very, very, like, I don't want to say it's poorly directed, it's certainly not. It's competent, It, it the cinematography looks good, it is, um... You know, the acting performances are fine. Norman Reedus kind of sleeps his way through everything. He's not a favorite actor of mine, but he's he's okay in this. He's, he's fine. Um, Udo Kier is great. Some of the side characters, like the little, uh, you know, um, as, 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 as Kirby goes along in this uh, searching for the film, you kind of come to some, some different side characters. And there's certainly some compelling performances. Um, but yeah, just the kind of like generic TV look this thing has um 
bugs me a little bit because it's so not John Carpenter. The lack of moving camera, the kind of three camera, three point camera setups, and a lot of a lot of the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it doesn't have a whole lot for somebody that is certainly a stylist and is you can just kind of pick his style out of you know just by seeing a, a few scenes from one of his films or whatever. Um, not a whole lot of that here. You know, and I don't mean that as an insult necessarily to John Carpenter, and it doesn't necessarily destroy the piece. It's like, say you're you're somebody who knows nothing about, you know, you can't tell a Carpenter film from another, like, you, you just don't have that, you're not carrying that baggage in with you, then it's probably not going to affect your enjoyment of this, of Cigarette Burns, but um, it does me, and I, I admit that's a bias, so... <laughs> um, I think it works okay. I think I think it's a compelling mystery. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I like I said. I, that's the main thing that I love about it is this kind of like the concept of you know a film, not only a lost film, but a lost film that's supposedly you know quote unquote cursed, and and you know people that see it um, go mad and you know kill and become violent and um, yeah. I narratively, I think there's some structure problems in it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I should let you, <laughs> let you weigh in a little bit. Like, what, no, no, no. What do you fine. think this time? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it. The first half of it really kind of felt like it felt like a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, and and part of that is just dating, you know. Like that's the way these things were written back then. Because I remember watching this, thinking that it felt like something better quality than a typical TV show. Like it felt like yeah. a, like a short film. Right. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, just style of things in, in the mid, early, you know, aught thousand, 2000s, like 2006, um, 2005 and 2006. But as I continued watching, um, I, I loved the concept of the, and, and this isn't anything totally original, but I do like the, you know, kind of, you know, it's it's so bad you go insane. I love that kind of shit. I think that's one of the things that I liked <laughs> about like Lovecraft mm-hmm. is that vagueness is just endearing to me because it, it it so blatantly leaves things up to the audience's imagination. It's just telling you like you make it up. I kind of appreciate that. Yeah. Um. That being said, I, they these have a, those types of things have a tendency when then made and, and shown in any degree in film to uh, kind of shoot themselves in the foot because if you tell somebody this thing is so screwed up you go insane and then you show them any aspect of it it kind of ruins it this one though doesn't totally ruin it. it it shows you enough and it's disturbing enough that it it keeps you interested so yeah. I think as far as storytelling and narrative and, and some of the, the choices made and how to edit this saved it from falling into those very common pitfalls. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's cracks are showing. Yeah, I do I do like how they they don't really show you a whole lot of the the film is a, a supposed French film that played one time, um, thirty years prior to you know modern day in this story. Uh, called La Fin Absolute du Monde, which is French for the absolute end of the world. Um, they don't show you a whole lot of the film itself, which I think is smart. Like, because near, like you said, like it, it trying to sell that and like show you the film that makes people crazy kind of thing. It's always going to kind of sell it short, right? Because getting to that level of 
you know, being able to see most of the scenes from the film in the film and not go crazy yourself kind of leads some leads you to disbelieve the narrative a bit, maybe. But, oh, it's like in Rosemary's Baby, you know, like you hear stories about people in the theater leaning in the theater to see if they can look around something on the screen to see it, get a glimpse of the child. Like, <laughs> if it can pull you in that well, um, where, you know, something off camera or not being told to you is so disturbing that you're you're teased by it and you want to see more you want to hear monty python's you know most dangerous joke in the world you want to know what that really was that you're fall you're you're allowing yourself to fall for the gimmick and when it works it's great and i feel this is one of the ones that does yeah despite its flaws yeah and i, and I love those things about it i love the, the con conceptually i i absolutely love this Here's my main gripes with it is um, I don't like that we see the supernatural element of the film in the first couple scenes. Like, I don't like that we see the angel, um, the D-winged angel. Yeah. I know that kind of sets stakes to the mystery that it's not just, you know, we're not just looking for celluloid in an old can here. There's something going on. There's some there's some truth to the stories. Um but I think it's it just too much, too fast. Like a little, little hints that things were going. You know, you start when he started seeing the. It's called cigarette burns because of the. Um, in cinema, when uh, there's a hole punch done on the end of a film reel or 20, 20 seconds, so many, many. I do the math: twenty-four frames per second. But twenty seconds before a reel change, there's a punch that usually comes al along to alert the projectionist that he needs to, you know, switch the reel over. Uh, those are affectionately called cigarette burns because it's what they look kind of look like when they're projected on on screen, just a little like circle of light. Um, it is the first thing when Kirby starts to lose grips with reality after you know becoming obsessed with this film, is he starts to actually see those in real life, and usually they're the predecessor to um, some kind of a vision or you know something otherworldly that he's you know witnessing or a hallucination of sorts. Um, so, I don't know, a couple of those little blips would have been fine, like, to put, but I feel like it just, like, gave it, I don't know, kind of spoiled the surprise, or that could have been a surprise at the end, or kind of upped the stakes at the end, that, like, oh, not only is this film real, not only does it have this effect on people, but it's tied into this whole other kind of supernatural realm, like, we actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, quasi snuff film with a with an ethereal creature as its victim um and as disturbing as that whole concept is i feel like we already we already know because in the first 10 minutes you showed us yeah um so that bugs me a little bit and it didn't the first time so i don't know maybe that's just i'm being over overly critical here but um i also feel like the mystery peters out in the second half like i really think it's compelling as a mystery like as a little detective kind of story um the fact that it ends up with like oh yeah well uh the filmmaker's widow yeah she's got the film like it's like well yeah no shit why do we check there first yeah it's like <laughs> yeah guess, instead uh... i instead i had to you know talk to the guy who had his hand burned and then witness a murder um yeah. and then had to Oh, yeah, the wife. Makes sense. Yeah. And that she's, you know, oh, you went... They kind of tie it together with, oh, you went through all these trials and tribulations of getting here, so I'm going to let you see the film, or I'm going to let you have it. But, yeah, I don't know. just seems a little... 
a little weak. And of course, John Carpenter did not write this. It was written by Drew, Drew McWeeny and uh, Scott Swan. Um, so anyway, I, I, it's not really his fault, but you know, still, I mean, it's just I feel like it's narratively not not quite as well put together. That being said, there is a lot of really creepy, cool stuff in this, and the. I always come back to the, I just love the fact that it's a, it's a detective movie, supernatural detective movie about, you know, a lost film, which is cool. And yeah. I also love this as part of, as much as I, it, 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 I don't think it like, like as a film feels a whole lot like a John Carpenter movie. I love that it's part of his filmography because I feel like it works as a, a bit of a companion piece to In the Mouth of Madness. And there's nothing else in his filmography that feels like it fits with that movie and i yeah. love in the mouth of madness so this one kind of gets back to that a little bit um it's certainly not as good as in the mouth of madness but <laughs> yeah i feel like i feel like this could have been written by sutter kane yeah there you go you know <laughs> that'd be funny to you know, just throw that credit in there but yeah written by sutter kane <laughs> wow yeah i i overall i i still like this one it I, I have a favorite scene and it's for really disturbing reasons but when remember now everybody who sees the movie goes homicidically insane uh, when uh, when Kirby goes back to uh, Bellinger's home and meets his butler <laughs> who has carved himself up with a kitchen knife and the butler's like oh you brought this evil to our home and then the butler proceeds to gouge out his own eyes with a knife. Mm -hmm. There's just the yeah. scene of him just stabbing himself in his own eyes. And it's so gory and disturbing and uncomfortable. And my God, I've got so many movies I've watched where that scene keeps popping into my head as I watch them. <laughs> like, I don't know, Mac and Me or <laughs> Repo the Genetic Opera. I just, all I imagine watching the movie is just a guy stabbing his own eyes out. So it's got a purpose. It is one of the like it, it, this you know cable Showtime and I know Showtime obviously doesn't have the limitations of some cable and especially not of network television, but they are the ones that wouldn't show Takashi Miike's Masters of Horror movie. Um, yeah, it's a it's a fairly like graphically disturbing eye gouge scene, like next to maybe like Lucio Fulci's zo famous zombie, zombie eye gouge. The eye gouge, yeah. Um, this one's up there. Like he's just full yeah. on, like full facial. You know, it's, it's not hidden. He just stabs himself in the eyes and and uh, and then ten minutes one, later, I believe. Like yeah, and then yeah. ten minutes later, you see him crawling around blind, and it's just like, mm -hmm. oh god, he's still alive. Fuck. Yeah. yeah, it's really disturbing. It's very effective, and it's a great. I, I why is this not a GIF yet? <laughs> yeah, no I kidding. I would that. use I'm, that. I'm shocked it's not. I'm gonna have to figure out a way to make it because I would use that GIF like, oh, I saw this movie. What'd you think? Click Just, <laughs> 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 to the eyes. That's yeah, yeah. There's we've all seen stuff that just fits it really, really well. So yeah, overall, I still like cigarette burns. I I can see the the how it's it's aged and, and dated, but. Uh, overall, I still I still liked it. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not bad. It's um, I don't know if and I'd have to revisit the entire you know first season to to really say where it ranks these days. But after watching you know the subsequent we we also watched you know um, the one that Joe picked, and I feel like 
that one manages to on the same television budget like they're still working with you know this low lower budget tv it, it just seems to like exceed cigarette burns in a lot of ways that you know um because because at first i was thinking oh you know I was using the budget and kind of the constraints of the project to explain some of my issues with it. And then after revisiting the second episode, I was like, well, no, not really. Cause this, you know, the other film director didn't seem to ha- struggle with those things. He was able to make it work. So, um, yeah, I'm a little disappointed and only, and I admit I'm carrying a big amount of bias with me because Carpenter's a favorite of mine. This is not a favorite film of his. So, Maybe that just is. Maybe that's building me up for a little letdown, but certainly not bad. You could do a lot worse. It's only an hour long. I mean, give it a shot. It's it's a a compelling um, concept at the very least. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. wanna? We're gonna do grades individually. Do you wanna go ahead and grade this one and then? Sure. Before we move on to the okay. Yeah. Sure. Let's do that um, o- overall, I'm gonna give cigarette burns a B minus. Um. I think it's it's a clever enough story about like I, I like the detective looking for a lost film um, and it drives you insane I mean it's it's <laughs> it's very simple uh, but it's pretty gory it's it, it is a bit dated as I keep saying but overall yeah I'm the only the only other thing too that, that did bother me I completely agree it, it doesn't feel like full carpenter yeah it, it, it his name's on it and I guess it's just one of those things where you have to really look carefully to see his influence, his directorial yeah. style in it. It's just not there otherwise. Um, but as as a standalone thing, if I remove my kind of carpenter glasses from it, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, it's it's one of the better things that I've seen in a long time. So, uh, so yeah, I'd say B minus. Yeah, I'm actually not too far off. It's it's tarnished a bit. Like uh, it, I think the excitement of getting ready, you know, getting into finally being able to watch Masters of Horror, the first time I saw this, and also it being one of my favorite filmmakers. I think just just, I think I was afraid to not like it and, and just kind of glossed over some of its flaws. I was able to when revisiting it, not you know, not come at it that way and and saw a few of them. Um, like I said a hundred times, and I'll say it one more time, I think it's a really great premise. Um, I think it suffers from a little bit of like sloppy narrative. I think the acting goes back and forth. There's some great performances in here, and then there's Norman Reedus. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, the mystery kind of falls apart in the third act. Basically, I've already gone through most of my gripes, so um, just going to... I think I'll commit it a C plus. So really, I'm not I'm not landing that much different. It's it's perfectly enjoyable as an episode of an anthology series. This is a above average anthology series as it is, and this is still you know on the average with this series. So um, certainly not something to avoid. I would say by any means, especially being if you're uh, if you're a fan of Carpenter and you're looking for some of his signature things. You may be a little bit disappointed, but um, overall, it's certainly worth a watch. I'm going to go with C+. Oh, one one other side note I did want to mention is that Carpenter, John Carpenter's son, Cody, did the score for this. And I feel like the score also was just a bit of like... I don't know. Is it, is it possible to say that maybe his son was trying a bit too hard to sound like his work like and, and now it did cody carpenter's gone on he plays in in the in john carpenter's band now and they make great music together i love a lot of the stuff they're doing um but in this case i feel like 
it was uh this is a john carpenter movie listen to the music can't you tell like <laughs> yeah um, yeah and, anyway but but it's kind of yeah, like when, so, when morricone did you know the music for the thing and made it sound just like carpenter yeah <laughs> i always love that right that's true you go out of his way to hire somebody he admires and they just make a <laughs> it just makes the same music yeah and it worked but yeah it did yes yeah so the one I picked from season one of Masters of Horror was episode 11, which is directed by Larry Cohen and was Pick Me Up. Gotcha! You're not done yet. Y'all headed up anywhere near Lansdale? We ain't headed nowhere right this minute. I can take a few of these passengers up to the trading post. So, what you carrying in the back? Me. I'm kind of worried about those people back in the bus. Him and me, we're very different. He's kind of a poacher. <laughs> Hitchhikes, and that makes him hard to track. Can we offer you a ride? He rides, I drive, he gets picked up, I do the picking up. You offer me a ride? That's the way it's supposed to go. Only question is which one of you is the bigger psycho? basic premise of this is two serial killers one's a hitchhiker and one's a a semi-truck driver kind of try to outwit each other as they're fighting over the same prey Mm -hmm. Um, kind of dueling up and down a secluded stretch of road in the northwest right yeah and i really liked this one when it came out this was one i think I don't think I saw this one on Showtime. I think I saw this one on DVD. Hmm. Okay. Um, but I really, really liked it um, when I first saw it. So, and it, it's just, it's, it, this one felt more like a Larry Cohen movie, which you remember we reviewed a couple of Larry Cohen movies. We did Q, The Winged Serpent, and The Stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This felt a Both little... also starring somebody who starred in this film. <laughs> Michael Moriarty, yeah, who's in this one as well. And this one feels a bit more like a Larry Cohen story. Not exactly, but more like one than Cigarette Burns does for Carpenter. Um, yep. But yeah, it's it's a serial killer turf war with a, a semi-truck driver whose name is Wheeler and a hitchhiker <laughs> whose name is Walker. Yep. Um, and then you've got Stacia, who's played by Feruza Balk. So it's got a really good cast. Michael Moore already plays Wheeler, and then Cole, uh, Warren Cole plays Walker, um, who, if you ever saw Avengers, he's the guy playing Galaga on the, the, the big ship in the towards the beginning. Um, so he's <laughs> he's been in a couple of different things. But uh, this was actually, I think, his first role, uh, at least it's the first thing he's credited for. 
But yeah, Michael Moriarty as the semi-truck driver. And what's interesting is the two killers have these different codes. Like the truck driver will, if you if you agree to get in his truck with him, he'll kill you. And the hitchhiker will kill you if you agree to pick them up. So they've, they've got these two different codes, like polar opposite codes, which I thought was very, very clever. Uh, it's in, destiny in driving the two of them toward one another <laughs> right so little. yeah so the basic premise is you've got a, a, a like a greyhound bus full of people and it breaks down and michael moriarty rolls up and takes some of them to a gas station and and some of them actually survive and mm-hmm. uh and then you've got walker who shows up and kills the remaining people at the bus i don't know it's just it's pretty ridiculous it's very it's, silly. I mean, the guy chokes somebody with a dead rattlesnake at one point. <laughs> this isn't the first kill. Uh, like it's the first, first like, kill as he strangles uh, the bus driver. <laughs> the hitchhiker strangles the bus driver with a dead rattlesnake. It's just absolutely nuts. Yep. Um, it sets the tone for the rest of it, I think. like, I, I feel like it was... A, a deliberate choice to make it, you know, especially the first kill, but a lot of it over, silly and over the top. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that rattlesnake bit kind of sets the tone for the rest of the piece. And yeah, it's it's something. It, <laughs> um, it feels a lot like a Twilight Zone episode or a Tales from the Crypt episode. Yeah, I, I'd say Tales from the Crypt because it just. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like differing. They're both villains or they're both serial killers, but they have this differing kind of code of ethics and they're both kind of questioning each other and it kind of dives into like, I don't know, the, the, the I don't know if there's a philosophy of murder, but like, <laughs> um, yeah, just kind of they're, they're different, um, yeah, different MOs. And it's, it's also funny and... My, Michael Moriarty kind of like steals the show. He, he but... totally steals the Just, show um... in this. I mean, you can tell he's ad libbing a lot of what he's doing. But then again, we said the same thing when watching the stuff and mm-hmm. watching Q. How he he just kind of he kind of rambles on screen, but he he creates that character that you. It's not necessarily a character you'd want to be around, but it's believable because people have these weird quirks. And he brings those out, like in characters like Wheeler, even the way he speaks and the way he puts random emphasis. I mean, shit, people do Christopher Walken impersonations all the time. Where are the Michael Moriarty impersonators? Where you just kind of (laughs) sporadically put emphasis on words for no reason. Yeah. Um, and, And, but just like little little actions little moments little lines and stuff that he's he's doing moriarty i hate to use like trendy film you know buff phrases but i guess at at that risk moriarty's an actor who's not scared to explore the space you know like you're watching the this one as and i'd say as well as anything else you see michael moriarty in and you really have to wonder was that in the script with yeah. just there's about a, everything. There's a does. lot of moments where he just kind of like steals a scene, and it's and it's not like they're doing it in one take or anything. But the scene 
just kind of keeps playing out to a place where you wonder, like, okay, you know, how much of this was scripted and how much of this is him just, you know, really, like, giving you this character. And an example of that, I think, it, it may, perhaps the best example in the film, and it, it's, you, it's the first scene also where you kind of get the sense of Wheeler as a character, um, is when he's intimidating a uh, convenience store clerk with his yeah. sidearm that he pulls yeah. out of, you know. Um, and just kind of everything about this character comes out in that scene. And whether... I. I can't remember if we know that he's a murderer at this point yet or not. Um, I think we've guessed by this point, but it's it, essentially after that scene, you know, like he—it's pretty much set up this whole character for you in that one scene, and the the fact that he's able to do that is, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. He, he's he's pretty fantastic. As much of a nutcase as he is, um, every I think he does that in all three of the Cohen movies we've seen. He just is able to. I don't know, he elevates the material, and he just diet. He does things with you know, getting, getting that character across, and really making your skin crawl. Two out of three of these movies, he's just a you know totally contemptible character, but he does it really well. Well, yeah, and and nothing to take away from from Warren Cole as the hitchhiker Walker in this, who is you know he plays the kind of cowboy charming, yes ma'am, no sir kind of thing. Uh, very very well Moriarty just is so believable like the character he, he creates characters and as much as mm-hmm. yeah I agree Michael Moriarty is absolutely insane and the reason I say that is um, when I saw this on DVD there's a, a, a making of featurette at the end where they talk about you know what it was like to work with Larry Cohen and all this stuff Moriarty all he fucking does the entire interview is talk about abortion and how horrible it is and how pro-life he is. It's the weirdest goddamn thing. You know, like, so where'd you get the inspiration? Well, you know, if you think about an abortion. I'm like, oh, God, God. You know, like, <laughs> but that's how he is. So, well, I don't know what the fuck was going on the day that they shot that documentary. But, yeah, yeah he, he just says random crazy shit. But, you know, the, the scene where he's playing piano... You you try to listen to what he's saying, and he's just babbling. Yep. But he gets enough of it out where it's it's believable. Um, there are some really great scenes in this episode, though, with with him and and Warren Cole when they first meet at the motel, mm-hmm. and their their they're... little banter back and forth. But they're not saying anything, but you know what they're saying. Yeah, and and I know you said don't don't sell Warren Cole short, and I think that's that's the key right there. They actually play off of each other really well. They really so I think, do. I think you can't you can't sell him short. He he, you know, he fills his space and acts as you know the scenes between them are great. Uh, he, whether he's just you know playing second fiddle in, in a good way to to Michael Moriarty and building that um, his character or you know or not is is questionable, I suppose, but. I think I think he does fine, and their their scenes together are probably the best um, scenes in the film. The, the scene in the truck when uh, Feruza Balk is tied up in between the two of them, yeah. and they're you know having an argument basically about no, I you know I kill the right way, and I'm more righteous, and I'm you know this and that, and uh, but yeah, it's, it's good stuff. I mean they they bounce off of each other very well. So yeah, yeah, I don't think you can sell 
I, I agree with you. Warren, Warren Cole, although you may peg him as like the lesser actor, or the lesser of the two of them, he certainly holds, you know, holds his own with Moriarty and, and you know, bounces back and forth with him quite well. And, and Feruza Balg, we haven't even mentioned her other than the fact that she's in this. She's excellent mm-hmm. in this as, you know, it's one of the last things I think I've seen her in where she's really in, in a positive role. Um, yeah. I really liked her in this, and I'm not always a huge fan of her work, but I really liked her in this as, like, a victim, but doesn't just lie down and take it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and this was made in 2005, um, and and in, you know, as this old man always say, uh, things have changed quite a bit, in even in, you know, representation and the way that we, you know, viewed that kind of a role in a movie now. So I don't think it's perfect. Like, she's not, you know, she may not be, like, the, the per- most perfectly depicted, you know... Um, female character in a horror film but i think they do good things with it like i think she's a well-realized character and that that's important um i also think that she's never just a you know screaming damsel in distress either which right. is cool like i think that's um i i was wondering through the kind of the first half of this thing like where you know because i saw her name in the credits and obviously she's in the first scene and um, she's, she's like top build on, you know, Michael Moriarty, Bruce Bulk, I think is second. Um, she might've even been first. I don't know. And, uh, and then she kind of disappears and it's till like the second half when she kind of, you know, comes back into the narrative and yeah, I mean, really, I'm just, I'm just kind of saying the same thing that you already said much more concisely, but that, yeah, I, I, I appreciated, uh, what they did with her character. So, yeah, I, I think it, it, it it really works in, in this where you don't want like just some screaming debutante running around or, or whatever, you know, she, she's resourceful, but the reality is also that she's up against multiple serial killers at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. but this, you know, a lot of Cohen stuff, whether it's the stuff or Q takes, there's always some kind of a cultural element to them. And it, you know, with with um, with the stuff, it was you know consumerism is a lot more in common with Romero than I, I previously realized. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and Cue the Winged Serpent was kind of about like how we, uh, you know, uh, consume media rather than just yeah. products. And this one, you know, it deviates. You can tell this isn't like a Larry Cohen original. I mean, it was written by by David Show, um, who I didn't even bother to look him up. But oh, yeah, it's the <laughs> guy who wrote things like Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three, The Crow. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's he's more splatterpunk. Um, so yeah, he's he's won a lot of awards and stuff like that, but he's got a very specific storytelling style. Um, what I think is so good about Pick Me Up is it it really does balance that dark comedy horror boundary very very well, yeah. and Cohen's stuff does have a tendency to be darkly funny. Yeah, I think so everything it, I've seen of his actually yeah. has yeah quite a bit of humor running through it. 
what was missing from this that was so common in a lot of Cohen's other movies is uh, the role of race. Yes. He, 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 and that's just absent here. This is, you know, lots of white people, which is fine. But yeah, there's it, one black character who is the bus driver who is strangled with a snake, and I think that's kind of yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think I don't think the absence of diversity in this or anything is like a symbol of Cohen trying to say something. No, I think it was just how it was cast. But um, right. That all being said, it it does kind of play with some stereotypes about truck drivers and hitchhikers and you know it's like in this case it's all of your worst nightmares come true and more yeah so i i like that oh. and there's a moment there's like a, a one one shot that has been burned into my retinas because it's just so fucking weird of michael moriarty because of course it's michael moriarty when <laughs> he comes back to the side of the, the the dead bus and he sees one of the passengers is like tied up at barbed wire on the tree and he's doing you can tell it's moriarty doing his random improv but he's like oh you think i'm some kind of monster and he does this little thing with his teeth and it's just the (laughs) weirdest just just like cringiest thing like i'm a monster and it's just it's so yeah you know this you know the shot i'm talking about yeah yeah just it's cringy as fuck yeah, but it's it's cringy in a way like that works though. It's not like take you out of the movie kind of cringy. It I don't know. I totally like buy it from this character. Yeah, <laughs> it totally, so, totally. Yeah, and they even do the the foreshadowing in the beginning. I kind of love that he's not even hiding anything. Yeah. You know, because you know no, he he, he picks up the first two hitchhikers. And and the the lady Bertie, her name is. She's flirting with him, and asks him, uh, you know, if she picks up people. He's like, yeah, I pick people up, and sometimes I even let them go. Ha ha. Yeah. You're like right away, you're like mm, that ain't cool. <laughs> yeah, you like know? he no, he just right out tells her in that scene in the truck before they get to the trading post or whatever. Yeah, he he tells her all about exactly what he does. He like doesn't hide a thing, and she just I, laughs yeah. along, and What's he laughs, that? and but. It's a line where he's talking about growing up in all five boroughs of New York at the same time, which is just like a clever line. And then he's like, yeah, I'm going to get out of there. Too many witnesses. Ah, I hate witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck. Jesus. It's just yeah, so Yeah, I weird. think she even has a moment of, what do you mean, witnesses? And then she lets it go again. Like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah, yeah there's a whole bunch of that. It's, it's, it's. And that's the word the humor is like it's funny like all throughout it's funny and I mean there's certainly some disturbing or darker moments, um, but there's yeah this strong sense of humor and the, especially the play like um, that whole scene in the truck and like we talked about like the scene but the scenes between the, the two serial killers are, are just all well realized they're all funny it's 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 fairly well written um, but really well acted which uh and, and i feel like well directed too like to the point where this is what i was talking about at the end of the, the book we were talking about cigarette burns is like when i saw this directly after watching cigarette burns um i started to actually go a little bit backwards on cigarette burns because i saw what larry cohen did with the same budget 
And I was like, wow, okay, well, this is very cinematic. He's, he, you know, he's shooting with close-ups. He's not using, like, a three-camera TV kind of setup to shoot his conversation scenes. Um, he's not phoning it in like, I, you know, John Carpenter may or may not have been on, on cigarette burns. Like, this is a really well-made short film. And it yeah. feels cinematic, and the acting's incredible, and it's... Um, you know, it's silly, and it 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 exists mainly as a you know dark, dark gory comedy. But it's, yeah, I don't know. And then then, then it got to like towards the end, and when we, we do the or what I'm gonna call like the murder love triangle or whatever they're having, of mm-hmm. uh, who gets to you know kill off the final girl, um, I it occurs to me that like maybe this is actually a little more genius than. I'm giving it credit for it. I'm already giving it fairly bit of credit, a fairly large amount of credit, but um, it occurs to me that like, oh, you know, this. I think it's the pop machine scene where both of them kind of corner Feruza Balk at the uh, motel. Yeah. Yep. And it kind of occurs to me like this is the shit that women fucking deal with, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like these, both of these creeps. These are totally different kinds of creeps, but they're both very much creeps, and you could tell, and and she can tell, and she's stuck in this situation. Where she, you know, and she does exactly what she should, and she packs her shit and gets the hell out of there. And yeah, I don't know. She she acts like a very like she, like we said, she's a very like well realized and, and rationally thinking character. Um, but yeah, it's got this like commentary. I think about like, <laughs> I mean, in a way, like all men are creeps. They're just creeps in different ways. And uh, once I like that got into my head, it it started working even more for me. It's like. Um, and I, you know, I literally don't leave literally all men, I suppose, being one, but, but yeah, it's that kind of, um, yeah, just social commentary on like, you know, everybody's, everybody's hiding a secret, everyone's got a dark motive kind of, and then just the way that, you know, you, you know what it reminded me of is like, uh, you the kind of, the common like trope, uh, we see in, in, in in cinema and you know perhaps we've been around people that have acted this way in the past but like you're hanging out with a group of dudes right or there's a group of guys in a movie or something and and the group of like cool girls come in and and they're like oh i'm gonna you know oh the blonde i, I i'm gonna call the blonde she's mine man like you know yeah um, that kind of like that's what these guys are doing <laughs> like and uh it's just this weird like of course they want to murder her but it's um yeah, anyway, just felt like it, it all of a sudden started working on a totally different level, and it bumped my appreciation, like, way up. Not only that, but it's funny, and it's just, I don't know, Michael Moriarty makes it. Yeah. <laughs> he really does. Um, he just, every scene he's in, he just chews the hell out of it, and it it's pretty great. But, yeah, I, I, I unfortunately watched that making of featurette. <laughs> yeah. Which has forever kind of imprinted Michael Moriarty in my brain <laughs> as a guy who, while dressed as a truck driver and sitting there being interviewed, will just go off on rants about the evils of abortion. And I, I know I say this about movies periodically on this show and off air, but this is the one that is the most like they just found Michael Moore already driving a truck and said, well, I guess he's in the movie now and just recorded <laughs> him doing his day-to-day activities. Yeah. Would make, I would not be surprised. I'd I be mean, like, let's... yep, that checks out. 
let's be serious. Like, if would you be shocked? I mean, like you just said, if you found out Michael Moriarty stopped acting, now he just drives a truck and, you know, kills somebody every once in a while. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Not so, at all. I, I'd be a little more... Like, no shit, if you said Warren Cole. But Michael Moriarty, I'd be like, <laughs> hasn't he been doing that for a while? Yeah. I, I just, yeah, that's kind of my... That was always the next phase of his career. That seems to be. Like, that's just <laughs> what, what you do, I guess, if you're him. Yeah. Um, but they also get to tell one of my favorite parables in this one. Which has ah, also yes. been repeated Speaking in... Snakes, yeah. Snakes in the Snow. It's been repeated in a version of it in Natural Born Killers of you know a woman walking through a park in the winter and she sees a snake in the snow and it's all frozen and cold and so she picks it up to warm it up and in some versions she takes it home and nurses it back to health and then it bites her and she says how could you do that to me you know after everything i've done for you and this lady you know i was a snake when you picked me up and i've always loved that i yeah. don't know why because i don't even like snakes but i really <laughs> like that that little parable and, and it works really well, very, very well in this short film. Because you've got the truck driver who could be the snake. You know he could be a snake when you get in his truck. Or the hitchhiker could be the snake. You know there could be a snake when you pick them up. And I just, I don't know. It works so well in, in this. This is really some quite good writing for a TV show. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I started to find different like different layers to it as it went on too, and it's just um, perhaps things I did not appreciate about it the first time I saw it because I do not remember enjoying this one a whole, at least not as much as I did this time around. So, if you were to give this one a grade, what do you think? Um, yeah, I, I guess as I was just saying, these these, these two episodes kind of flip flopped for me. Um, I certainly liked Cigarette Burns better than Pick Me Up the first time around by comparison, but um, this one's really, really pretty great short film, especially for an anthology series. Um, I don't know, it's got really good performances. It's it's genuinely funny. It's not just, you know, a joke here and there, but, like, conceptually it's, it's all there. It's got this, you know, kind of interesting oddball setup of two killers facing off or, you know, competing over their prey um i felt like you know and, and maybe it's just me but i feel like there's a deeper message running through there you know especially about the predatory nature of of you know a relationship between between the sexes or genders um but yeah it's it's all of that and a, you know just fantastic if you could too bad you can't uh give an if you could give an oscar to uh, michael moriarty for anything i've seen him and it would be the gun scene in, in this movie he's it's just it's just great. So, oh, yeah. Um, I feel like one gripe, and, and the only thing that's going to knock it down a little bit for me, is I feel like both of these, uh, both Cigarette Burns and Pick Me Up, from this time I watched them, I know they're short films, and I know they're only supposed they're only an hour long, but I feel like both of them still could have been a bit shorter. Um, yeah. Like, it just, there were points in it where it just felt like they were, you know, kind of tacking on a little bit because it's a short film concept that's the thing about short films is it's certain kind of story ideas make good short films and these both of these um films cigarette burns i could see in a, in a way being adapted to a feature but pick me up it's certainly a short film concept at least in my in my brain it works better that way i feel like it could have even you know been a little shorter 
But anyway, that's uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so hats off to the late, unfortunately late great Larry Cohen. Yeah. Um, it's it's different than his usual, but I think he brings enough of his A game, and he just like knocks it out of the park with this one. I think this one, this one really grew on me versus the first time I watched it. I'm gonna give this one a B plus. I think so. Wow. Um, this one was one that I enjoyed the first time I saw it, and you know, like I said, I, I did that with with cigarette burns as well. This one I feel like held up held up better. Um, the the performances are just crazy, the plot is pretty crazy, uh, but the story's the story's pretty solid. So I'm actually going to give this one like an A minus. I agree with you; it could be a little bit shorter. Uh, but I, I really wonder how much of that is they let Moriarty just kind of do his own thing and they just kept recording <laughs> and there was a lot that they just they're like, we can't let this not be out there. So I'm going to give this one uh, an A-. minus. And next week we're going to be continuing our discussion on Masters of Horror Season 2, but I would also love to invite any of our listeners to uh, share any of their questions, comments, criticisms, or witticisms about what they think of Masters of Horror. If you have seen it, if you saw it back in the early 2000s like we did, or are you watching them now for the first time on Tubi, which we highly recommend, revisiting it at, at the very least. Um, what are your thoughts? Do you have a favorite episode from Season 1? We'll be talking about Season 2 next week, but uh, any favorites from Season 1, or what do you think of these particular episodes? Please feel free to share those with us at... VideoJunkerPodcast at gmail.com or at VideoJunkPod on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at the Video Junker Podcast main page and the Video Junker Podcast group, as well as on Instagram and Pinterest. And uh, as we've said many times, coming up next week, we're going to look at the second season of Masters of Horror. Uh, we'll each pick one episode and, and, and talk about them and give them grades and all, all that good stuff uh, next week. And coming up the week after that, I... I don't know if we actually officially decided. If not, I will edit this part out. If so, then we will continue to do it. But for the 150th episode of the Video Junkyard Podcast, we are going to be looking at a a couple of movies, uh, but a series that we've uh, talked about doing on the show for a very long time. Uh, from probably day one, was uh, this movie was one that we wanted to get on there, and that is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one yes. of the uh, you know most famous cult movies of all time. Uh, but we're going to look at do, as a bonus, we're going to look at not only the first Chainsaw Massacre, but also Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, both films by Toby Hooper. Um, and kind of compare and contrast, because those are two films in a series that are drastically different. So that's the way we're going to celebrate our big 150th episode um, with some uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacres. So that uh, sounds good. Sounds appropriate. So. Sounds perfect to me. <laughs> but uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to our first part on Revisiting Masters of Horror here on the Video Junker Podcast, and we hope that you join us next week for part two. Until then, I want to thank you all for listening, and please feel free to share around. And until then, I'm Joe Peterson. I'm Miracle Branson. The only question is which one of you is the bigger psycho! You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could chat longer, but... I'm having an old friend for dinner. You just can't let them go? Go! Stay on the road. 
We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash video junkyard podcast on Twitter at video junk pod and on Instagram as video junkyard podcast all one word want to thank you again for listening and keep digging who knows what treasures you'll find in the video junkyard Hello fellow time travelers and welcome to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the only podcast to discuss in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and every two weeks or so I'm joined by a two to three person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. We also get the views of intermediate, casual, and novice fans who either have never seen the show or who have never read these books until these podcasts, including Dalton Hughes and Allison Fitzsafried. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find good podcasts, or even ones like ours. You're listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. Enjoy your travels.